Well, this is the bleeding brain. The bleeding brain. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. Nobody. Hey, what's up guys? This is Trevor from The Bleeding Brain. In this episode, I am very excited to share with you my conversation with Dr. Jerry Vobel, who is a professor and co-director at NYU. And Jerry, Dr. Jerry, specializes in brain injuries and brain injury related research. Also in this episode is Alyssa Carfee, the founder of the Brave Minds Project, which helps early teens and early adults battling with various brain and brain stem conditions. We talk about many different things, such as, does everything happen for a reason? We also talk about, have treatments of brain injuries changed over the last 20, 30, 40 years? We also discuss research that Dr. Vobel is doing on neuroplasticity and how the brain can recover and improve. We also discuss stem cells, a hot topic everyone likes to discuss. We talk about his research he's doing on neuroplasticity. We get into what he's heard about psilocybin research. I hope you enjoy this. I sure did i had a heck of a time learned a lot strap in and uh get ready to take some notes thank you does everything happen for a reason so um you know does everything happen for a reason <laughs> um so, I think that, um, especially when it comes to brain injuries, I would have to say, no, it doesn't happen for a reason. Um, but, uh, you know, there are causes, there are things that we are things that we just can't prevent from happening. Mm-hmm. It's just the way that our body has developed. So it's just the way that things happen. Um, and we'll get into much... We could go into this for on and on and on about how how things... You know, what's the cause of everything in life? Sure. But in actuality, you know... We could cause some things to happen, but mm-hmm. I would. But some things about our body just happen because it just happens, just the way that we're. We either have a genetic predisposition. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, but me walking across the street and getting hit by a car. God forbid. That's not, you know. Sub- you know, hopefully that's not because it was supposed to happen. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I, I would agree with what I said. It's like saying, you know, an eight-year-old has a diagnosis. That's just devastating. You would mm-hmm. never want, no one wants that to happen. No one wants a reason for that. But I think that as someone who has gone through it, a, a, experience like this and overcome an adversity like this which took a lot of time to overcome I can now look back and say like okay well maybe it did happen for a reason right it got me to where I made me the person that I am today 
But definitely when you're in the thick of it, it's like, well, why me? Like, there is no way that everything can happen for a reason. I, it's a, it's a statement that can be debated for hours, if not days and years. But yeah. um, that's my take on it. Now, Alyssa, you had an AVM. Um, can you kind of tell me the story of what happened? Sure. So um, I was 15 when I was first diagnosed with a brainstem cavernoma. And we found it because um, we saw that my right eye and my right side of my smile were just not looking like they typically look. So we went into the emergency room. They did an MRI and CAT scan. And um, ultimately, we found out then that it was a cavernoma. And this cavernoma was lodged deep in my brainstem. So each time it would bleed, it would cause something to go wrong, which for me, it affected my eye and my smile. Now, the first time I uh, was examined, they thought that it was Bell's palsy, and I was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. So then when I was 18, um, it bled again, and that was when my doctors okay, it's time to come out. We've watched this for a while. Each time you've bounced back, we know that it's bled three times, but now it's cause for concern. So um, a few days after my high school graduation, I had the cavernoma removed, and it was a very invasive process. Now um, technology and medicine have surpassed what I had done, um, which is awesome. But it was very invasive, and um, I had a very, very long recovery. I had to defer college for a semester. Um, But at the end of the day, I was able to then attend college. I was able to study abroad. I was able to get a job, live alone, um, and all within the uh, time span of, you know, the last 12 years. And um, every time... I would need a different cosmetic surgery. Okay. I would just kind of like have to hit pause on my life. If it was like a break in the semester for a holiday, sure. I would go get a little uh, facial paralysis type of surgery uh-huh. and be on my way. So um, definitely a different trajectory than most, I would say. But mm-hmm. um, I'm very fortunate, and that's pretty much how I got to where I am today. That's awesome. And Dr. Vogel, I want to ask you something about what Alyssa said in that treatments and brain injuries have changed over the years and how we treat them. Um, Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, the progression of the treatment of brain injuries and the types of brain injuries and the location of brain injuries has changed tremendously. Um, I had the uh i was very fortunate that i did my fellowship my postdoctoral fellowship training at the kessler research foundation Uh and which was and is connected to the kessler um rehabilitation um in north jersey and Uh It used to be one unit, and then right before I did my fellowship, they had separated it into a research unit and also the rehabilitation hospital. But um, there was a gentleman there that um, Dr. Rosenthal, Mitch Rosenthal, uh, who was one of the leaders of brain injury rehabilitation. And he 
along with other pioneers in the field um and the when they when that generation which was only maybe 24 20 to 40 years ago um when they started their research and their clinical work it really was out of a necessity to show that brain injuries people with brain injuries can still recover improve still contribute to society and can still improve and participate and have a quality of life and you know the idea uh, you know Alyssa uh, everyone with a brain injury has benefited in some way from that whole generation of research my whole line of research uh-huh. uh, neuroplasticity is a fa- is based on their lines of research. The idea that we are still trying to demonstrate how the brain can recover, improve, um, and still change over time. How we can improve the function of the brain so that people can have a a better quality of life. Now, can you define neuroplasticity for people who aren't familiar with it? Uh, thank you for that. Sure. Um, so, neuroplasticity, the whole idea is that the brain, 10 billion neurons making up this structure, you know, that sits above our shoulders and uh, that have connected together. Well, when we have a brain injury, those connections break. The idea is that how can we rebuild those connections? And neuroplasticity is about rebuilding those connections called synapses. And so how can we regenerate, rebuild those connections of cells called neurons back together or even regenerate new connections to to recover some kind of function some kind of ability to do something mm-hmm. whether it's talking some, some kind of cognitive ability whether it's um, paying attention or memory problem solving something walking Sure. Something like that. I thought it was really fascinating when we just had a brief conversation last week, me, you, and Alyssa, that you said that the the area that was damaged from a brain injury can't be repaired, but the cells around it could kind of take over. Could you elaborate on that more? Yeah. You know, this was a, a, a theory that uh, I was taught as a graduate student. So okay. uh, I went to graduate school uh, late 90s. And, um, and it was you know, taught to me that the, when an uh, area of cells that are damaged, well, those cells are damaged. They're going to be really, uh, basically, they're, they're not going to be viable once they're damaged. You know, they're 
not living cells anymore. That uh, um, so it's really the surrounding tissue around those dead cells can take over the function mm-hmm. of those dead cells mm-hmm. in some of the cases and sometimes even cells in the other hemisphere mm-hmm. take over those that role so if it's cells that uh, we know that um, in the left hemisphere for 90% of the people uh, when we talk the cells in our left hemisphere are activated. Well, if we have a stroke in the left hemisphere, it sometimes it's the cells in that surround that area mm-hmm. called Broca's area. Um, but sometimes the cells in our right hemisphere take over the role to help us talk. Mm-hmm. And this is, we can't define why, how the cells around that tissue sometimes take over that role, or sometimes cells in the other hemisphere, brain hemisphere, take over that role. We know that there are ways to help the recovery process, Mm -hmm. and it's really use it or lose it. So we really have to get people to do the exercises Mm -hmm. to general you know to get themselves to fire and to be activated as quickly as possible mm-hmm. yeah yeah i remember during my um recovery and stuff after my brain injury that was a phrase my parents use you know use it or lose it all the time and that and one thing i was going to ask you there and i think you answered it with by saying that is you know how do you how do you target um, getting other cells to re, you know, take over for those damaged areas. I guess there's really no way of designating it. It's just kind of by using the affected area to, to maybe fire those cells, right? That's right. Uh, it's the idea that uh, hopefully the cells that f- uh, feed those other cortical areas um, are going to be strong enough to send those signals. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they say, all right, you know, after a while, I'm going to start sending, after regrowing new synapses, well, I'm going to send that signal over to the other hemisphere. Obviously, I'm very curious about this. Is there any way to maybe accelerate that, like accelerate the cells, whether through, I don't know, I mean, cannabis or psilocybin or coffee? I mean, I don't know. I think that that is... Through medications, uh, I think that's still being explored. I think that there are some medications out there that uh, can help. I think my own research has been to explore neuroplasticity and methods for neuroplasticity um, from a non-pharmaceutical method. But I know that uh, psilocybin has been... The research on that has been explosive, especially over the last two or three years, because the federal rules and regulations have been relaxed enough mm-hmm. so that the uh, 
federal, you know, so that scientists like myself mm-hmm. can now start accessing the pharmacological sure. agent to start experimenting with it. Yeah, and with anything, mm-hmm. it's really got to go to animal studies first, and then to human studies, and and so on. Um, but yeah. you know, I, anecdotally, I've heard um, I've heard some good things about it, um, but uh, it's just been anecdotal. But it's also um, so it hasn't been. Con, you know, clinically controlled style, uh, trials yet. Actually, I have three different questions I kind of want to ask, but I'll off of that. So one, what research are you doing right now and have you been doing that kind of exciting or just, you know, what, what are you working on now? So one of the first projects that I really want to talk about is sure. my collaboration with Alyssa and the Brave Minds Project, mm-hmm. um, looking at how we can improve adolescents and young adults' lives. So mm-hmm. we've been looking at how to, um, this is based off of a prior project uh, collaboration that we've done together, where we took uh, focus groups um, um, and interviewed people with uh, that have had uh, cerebral vascular accidents, mm-hmm. traumatic brain injuries. Um, once again, adolescents through young adulthood uh, up until from 13 to 30 years of mm-hmm. age. And we identified that there are changes in how they are how they're treated and also mm-hmm. how what they feel that they can contribute to in making their own decisions about health about their um, what level of comfort that they can make about their own life mm-hmm. as well as um, about their social life and sure. social structure mm-hmm. so we then so that was some general questions some guidance it was a free interview free um non-structured interview mm-hmm. that we had and then we ended up uh designing our next study off of that and we've created uh some some surveys that look at how these adolescents through young adulthood uh, of people with acquired brain injuries, so acquired brain injury meaning that of people that have not born with a brain injury that's congenital, but a uh, after they've been born, after they've grown some, that they've acquired a brain injury Mm -hmm. and what we're concentrating on mainly are people that have had some kind of cerebral vascular accident Mm -hmm. such as a stroke um or a traumatic brain injury where their head has been hit Mm -hmm. some kind of impact to their head so we're looking to see their um are they able to make decisions 
what they're about their own health care. Are they getting uh, the information that they need to make decisions about their own health care? Um, are they um, getting the support, the emotional support that they need th- from the time of diagnosis through um, whatever treatment that they're receiving? as well as their social engagement and participation in everyday activities. Mm-hmm. So, and some of the questions are, since the study is fairly new, some of those questions are geared towards the new life that we're living mm-hmm. in, the COVID world that we're living in. Mm-hmm. And... It's, you know, feeling isolated, doing school from home over the computer, um, you know, through a mask or or whatever, you know, how are they, we, dealing with it? So, that's, Melissa, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I think that this is really important. I mean, earlier we talked about... um, just how things are evolving, like speaking from my experience, how my surgery was so invasive. And now, of course, it's still invasive, but the tools and the techniques are much more advanced. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when looking back at when I was going through this, uh, there were definitely some resources that I had available to me, but no one talked about mental health at all. Um, And so that is what sparked the idea to call the nonprofit that I launched on my 10-year brain surgery anniversary. Mm -hmm. We decided to call it a Brave Minds Project. And the term brave came from the fact that when I was going through everything, I didn't cry once, which (laughs) is not okay if you think about it. Um, but for me, it was kind of like a defense mechanism. So if a doctor sure. came in and said, okay, this is what's going to happen today. You're going to have this test done or, you know, you have to stay overnight or mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to happen after surgery. I would just look at them and say like, okay, in my head, I was like, okay, don't cry, don't cry. Because for me, if I was okay, my family saw I was okay, my friends saw I was okay, then they were okay. Mm-hmm. And it just was something that could take my mind off of it. And then, years later, um, it just all hit me, and I was like, okay, this was a lot. I I had a very different experience than my peers, and now I need to deal with it. Uh And um, I didn't want other people to feel that way, and so my parents and I realized that we went through something very significant, and it's now something that, again, everything happens for a reason. Maybe there was a reason. Maybe we can help other people. And so we call this group the forgotten demographic because, like Jerry was saying, there's a lot going on when you're a young adult and a preteen. Your hormones are changing. Your life is changing. You're trying to figure out who you are and what you want to be. And then all of a sudden you find out that there is something wrong and Mm -hmm. we need to potentially fix it. And what does that look like? So um, obviously now in the last 18, 19 months, it's a completely different playing field. It's new to all of us, whether you have an EBI or not. Um, And so we're hoping that 
we'll be able to better understand where the gaps are and how we can educate and work with other individuals, whether that's therapists, physicians, as well as parents and siblings, because that's also really important, and friend groups, um, and how we can work with these communities to give these patients what they need. Especially on the emotional aspect that you both touched on, because like you, like Jerry was saying, like you were saying, Alyssa, you know, when, you, when you're at that, like an adolescent age, and you go through something so traumatic, there's, you really don't, as a brain injury survivor, whether it's ABI or TBI, usually just doing what's told by your elders or the doctors, you know, and you're, then you're in this new body with like paralysis and whole messed up vision and things like that. And like, you know, you need to figure out emotionally how to be stable. And that's where I feel like it's kind of lost. And it sounds like you guys agree. Yeah, I think, like, for me, I was very fortunate. My neurosurgeon, actually, his son had leukemia at a young age. Uh-huh. So he was very good at playing the doctor, the patient, and the parent. And anytime <laughs> I asked questions, he, like, sat down, talked to me. And there was one point when my parents were like, should he be saying all of this? Like, I was 15. They, You know, it was so new to all of us. Um, but I was very lucky that I, I had that experience. Yeah. and. They were able to answer all my questions and anytime I needed anything. But I also think that, you know, my mind was just, it was not fully matured. So I was dealing with it how I thought I should be dealing with it, Mm -hmm. internalizing it. And, you know, you're at an age where you're embarrassed about things and you're not going to ask certain questions that maybe you should ask. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also had a very solid friend group. So there were points when my friends would come into the hospital and Mm -hmm. um, I think that to a social worker or anyone around me, they may think like, oh, okay, she's good. Like she's up, she's moving. But maybe that's not the case. And I think we're also very lucky that the conversation around mental health has come such a long way. And again, if we look at like a benefit of COVID, I think a lot of people are speaking out about this. Like look at the Olympics Mm -hmm. and gymnasts who spoke out about this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that it's, if anything, encouraging to people who are going through something as life-changing as this. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're just hoping to uncover different ways that we could, again, just meet them where they are and hopefully get the resources that they need. No, certainly. And let's dig a little bit more into the depression of, and the depression and the anxiety and the stress of a brain injury survivor, because that's something I've definitely had many conversations with other brain injury survivors. Tell me more about what the Brave Minds Project, you know, can do to help with that and other resources that are out there for them. Sure. Um, so I actually, I was very, if you want to say fortunate, Um, I don't know. It happened to me later on in life uh, where I felt very anxious and was kind of dealing with everything. When I was in the thick of it, it really didn't hit me as hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of provides me the opportunity to like take a step back and then be able to see what people are going through now at such Mm -hmm. a young age. And um, so one of the things that we look to do Uh, obviously everyone loves to receive something in the mail. So one of the small things that have a really big impact is our Courage Kit program. Mm -hmm. And that is basically, um, anyone can sign up for it. 
And we can also have people who come on and they uh, will donate different items, but we will send age-appropriate items to um, patients as well as siblings and parents awesome. um, just to put a smile on people's day, yeah. uh, on people's faces. Um, and so that's something small, but it's definitely mighty, whether you've had a bad day, a surgery, a your uh-huh. birthday, whatever the case may be. So that's something that's really small. Um, on another level, we also... Uh, have a scholarship program where we will help to offset different medical costs. So that Mm -hmm. could go to a therapy, that could go to um, a sports game, whatever, uh, or um, not a sports game, sorry, uh, a sports therapy, whatever is going to help the patient to get out there and um, help them to better improve. And um, the third thing is that we also put together little... um, interactive groups and we were doing these in person and then with COVID we started to do them virtually and um, it's very taxing on a lot of the people to do it virtually after they've been in school online and it's just a very long day so doing it in person is definitely better and plus they get the face-to-face time with others Um, and then we also will bring out different patients and bring them out to whether it's a um, painting class or just something to get them all together. And I think that that's just really powerful and fun for them. And it, again, takes them out of their home, out of the hospital. And everything that we do is just to make them feel special for not only that day, but down the road as well. That's amazing, and I'm sure uh, many brain injury survivors out there are going to be excited to hear about those sort of things, and, you know, I definitely want to help get the word out about that. Trevor, yes. I just want to emphasize one thing that Alyssa was saying. Sure. That she, that the Brave Mind Projects provides age-appropriate gifts. Alyssa, would you like to emphasize that? Why? Yes, so the why for that is because on my 15th birthday, I was in the hospital. That's, again, when I was diagnosed. I was in the hospital, 15, in the pediatric ICU, and um, a clown came in, and the social worker, and they gave me a teddy bear and a balloon, and it was funny. We were all laughing, but at the same time, I was 15. Like, I would have loved, um, I don't know, like, my nails painted or something age-appropriate. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and now, again, that was 12 years ago. Now, mm-hmm. they do have things that are age-appropriate. But um, what we do when we get different donations, we also have an Amazon wish list. Oh, sweet. And that has things that patients actually have requested. Um, a lot of it is uh, also different therapy uh, tools and accessories. So there's, like, a fidget spinner. There's um, a yeah. little bowling game. And then there's also just, like, really fun and uh, relaxing type of activities for them. And um, we will then send them to different hospitals when requested. And we'll then send them out to different patients, to their homes, whatever patients need. As I said, we like to meet them where they are. But definitely age-appropriate. If anyone has any ideas on different um, games or accessories, toys, gift cards that you would have liked to have seen, we'd definitely love to add that to our Amazon wish list. I can definitely give you some ideas. 
Trevor, I emphasize that because, you know, Alyssa's whole lived experience has brought her to create the Brave Minds Project, mm-hmm. right? The lived experience is so important in everything mm-hmm. that she does for the Brave Minds Project and supporting people through the foundation. Mm-hmm. The research that her and I are doing is also to understand the lived experience, mm-hmm. what people are are going through and experiencing, so that we can make changes, and whether it's policy, mm-hmm. whether it's public health, or through mental health practices, mm-hmm. or whatever the results we find can do to increase how the perception of people with brain injuries, acquired brain injuries, are um, mm-hmm. are perceived and what they can and can't do. And you said changing maybe policy. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, as we just discussed, mental yeah. health. Yeah. Not really emphasized. And one of the things that I, I'm a professor, uh-huh. I teach, right? And I actually, I, uh, my background in neuropsychology, so I have a psychology background as well as a neuroscience background. And, but I talk, a, I give a lecture on mm-hmm. post traumatic stress. For sure. And I give this in a lecture on hand trauma. <laughs> Doesn't, like, how does that go together? Well, it ended up, it ends up going together quite well because people that have um, such traumatic injuries to their uh, hand or mm-hmm. arms, uh, uh, shoulders, it's pr- most likely due to some kind of traumatic event, mm-hmm. car accident or industrial accident or something. Mm-hmm. It's some kind of event that is pretty traumatic. That's one tra- mm-hmm. trauma. The trauma is also living with now one functional hand. Yeah. Right? How do people deal with not being the way that they were prior to mm-hmm. their acquired brain injury. And we need to do a better job of providing services for that lived experience. Mm-hmm. And that is called post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Making sure that people understand that they have this new body mm-hmm. and what and how what they can do with the new body yeah so they can have a fulfilling life mm-hmm. no i couldn't agree more and i think Alyssa, i caught your attention on that one podcast i did when i kind of told a story about how i was i played hockey i was very athletic when i was younger and when my avm i guess ruptured or exploded or whatever 
Um, you know, I lost like a lot of use of my left side. I couldn't skate, couldn't really play sports anymore. And I remember my friends going and playing hockey or playing certain sports and it was difficult. And I, you know, I tried getting back out on skates. I thought with all my might that I'd be able to do it. And I just wasn't able to do it. And it was really difficult, you know, mentally to handle that, that blow that I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that that's something a lot of the patients we talk to deal with on various levels, whether Uh they can't play a sport again or they are now in different classes. Maybe now they have to uh, sit in IEP classes um, and they maybe have to sit out in gym class. Uh, And there's a lot that goes along with that. Um, I mean, for me, I just kind of, I was lucky it happened after high school, so it was kind of like I was going into a new place, college, and I was meeting new people, and Mm -hmm. it was a little bit difficult um, because I, again, had facial paralysis, and I had never had that, and so now I'm walking into a new place, and of all places, a fashion school, where it's, you know, it, um, it, you know, you want to be who you are, and uh, you're coming out of a small town, going into a big city, and you think you're this cool kid on campus. And so it was uh, a lot to deal with. But um, I do think that, again, talking about it and encouraging other people to talk Definitely. about it and to see that they're not the only ones, um, that is something that is so beneficial. Um, mm-hmm. I know that I had mentioned that we often bring patients out to uh like we did a girls night out and we went and did a ceramic class and it was a patient some of her friends and then me and my friends and my friends we've been friends uh I don't know since we were like 10 Mm -hmm. and so they've been by my side through the whole ups and downs of my surgery and recovery and um it was really a great opportunity for the patient's friends who were 15 years old to see how to interact with someone who maybe Mm -hmm. isn't the same person that you were friends with a year ago and it was I think a positive experience for them to see that we were still friends and when I was 17 and I or sorry I wasn't 17 when I was 19 and Mm -hmm. um I was still recovering I couldn't drive at the time And my friends were driving me all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you first get your driver's license, you're, like, hungry to drive and you just want your independence. And um, then when I was about 20, I was able to drive again. But they drove me around for, like, three years. I never said anything about it. It was just assumed, like, okay, yeah, coming to pick you up. Like, it, And I'm very fortunate. I know that. But that's one thing that my friends and I really try to drive home when we meet with patients and their mm-hmm. friends. No, definitely. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't give my friends and family a shout out here um, because they were so like one of my best friends, Jordan, when we were kids, you know, we played hockey together. And when this happened, he basically became my younger brother's big brother for me at the time. And he was uh, he was at the hospital all the time for me. And he drove me around like you said, your friend did. And um, he would help tie my shoes as my brother, and my parents did. Um mm-hmm. They would give me that look, you know, after I asked, but they'd always do it. I have some friends, yeah. I have some friends to this day who will just, when they see me putting on shoes, they'll just 
go and do it right away. I'm like, I don't need you to do that anymore. <laughs> but thank you. It's pretty fun. So, um, oh, go ahead. Trevor, I, I was just going to say one more thing about that. You know, the, the idea of, you know, our body changes after we have some kind of event, uh-huh. right? You know, you went from, you know, very athletic to, you know, playing hockey, and you had a little difficulty getting back on the ice again. Yeah. And I don't know if you play ice hockey now or not. No. no. But at the, I, I don't, what, how old were you at the time? Uh, 14, like almost 15. 14. Yeah. So, but at some point, did you know that you were going to be this phenomenal podcast interviewer? <laughs> you know, I didn't. I, 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 it was always about sports. My dream was to be an athlete, which probably was a pipe dream, but yeah. Right. So at some point, that just changes, right? But your strength just changed from being an athlete to someone that became very good at being you know, um, on the podcast and mm-hmm. interviewer, right? So that's the whole mental health and yeah. the post-traumatic growth of changing our role and identity of who we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Alyssa, I'm sure she didn't know at 15 and 17 and 19 that she would be, you know, this uh, phenomenal foundation and advocate for people with brain injuries yeah i think it's when you accept it and again like it took you i don't know about you trevor but it took years right i it was 10 years after Uh and i like well into my 20s i think after i was able to really understand and i had gone through um the different surgeries and i had that growth Uh that then i was able to accept it and be like okay now what am i going to do with this like this Uh happened what am i going to do how are we going to help other people and um, I think that that's something too that gets lost a little bit. Like when yeah. you're in the thick of it, you just you're not thinking about that. You're not thinking no. long term because you have to recover in the right now. Exactly. Um, no, I remember the exact place I was when I decided to create Brain Talk on um, the website and eventually podcasts. And that was, I was watching a video online of this doctor nurse who was dancing with this young child who looked like she had a brain injury she had a bunch of paralysis and things like that and I'm like oh my god you know I need to help other people who are, are going through and have gone through like I do or what I have and uh yeah but one thing I do want to circle around and this is a big circle but I want I'd be very upset if I didn't ask Dr. Um, Vobel is um I had a couple of brain injury survivors ask me about stem cells they're always talking about stem cells I've had one doctor tell me we're just not there yet. Um, could you elaborate? Yeah, unfortunately, for stem cells for the central nervous system, uh-huh. we're still not there. So cells for the central nervous system are different than cells in the rest of the body. Um, so cells in the central nervous system I can remember 10, 15, 20 years ago that they were still trying to uh, design them, regulate them, transform them, 
it to recover um, or to help rehabilitate spinal cord injuries. Mm-hmm. Regrow cells for spinal cord injury uh, patients. And they're just not there yet. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that they're not going to get sure. there because they probably will. It's just not there yet. Now, at the same time, to help with uh, ligaments and um, cartilage in shoulders and knees, very helpful. Good. So that's not central nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. These joints. Also, uh, stem cells are very helpful for treating cancers. That's great. So getting those stem cells to help treat, especially blood cancers, has been a phenomenal breakthrough in treating those blood cancers. They're a last resort right now, but they're a, an option for cancer survivors. That's, that's incredible because, you know, cancer is just another one of those things that won't go away. Are there any other, in addition to yourself, any other researchers out there who we should all be paying attention to? Trevor, I wanted to give one other plug to no, project sure, yeah. that I've started. Um, and I've had, because of uh, the pandemic, I've had to transition to, be in, to being in person, to mm-hmm. being remote and this is um, a cognitive remediation study where I am exploring how um, brain exercises can help recover or help improve cognitive performance especially verbal attention and verbal working memory Mm -hmm. to improve verbal memory so, and then we have it, this is based on a prior study, actually I just got noticed today that the publication came out uh, today uh, in the Journal of Neuroplasticity, I'm sorry, Neurorehabilitation. And this is all based on the theory of neuroplasticity mm-hmm. that we can affect the cells to make neuro, through repetitive exercises mm-hmm. that we can um, improve cognitive functions by improving these or changing mm-hmm. these cell connections. So, um, instead of doing the assessments and exercises in person because of COVID, and I want my team to be safe, I want people in the study to be safe, that now we're doing it all remote. So, it also you know, thinking glass half full. Instead of people in the New York metropolitan area, now I can get people around the country involved in this study. Yeah. Not just the geographical area around New York City uh-huh. uh, to travel, you know, with the limitation of traveling to me. Now mm-hmm. anyone with a internet connection can be in the study as long as they meet the study criteria mm-hmm. with a um, that have had a brain injury, some kind of impact to their head. Yeah. So um, I wanted to give one plug. But (laughs) to get back to your question of who we should be looking at, Trevor, there are 
tens of thousands sure. of cognitive neuroscientists um, around the world. And there's really just too many to even mention yeah. of who we should be paying attention to. Uh-huh. You know, I'm so focused on my little world of <laughs> cognitive yeah. rehabilitation, trying to improve people's lives through improving their cognitive abilities uh-huh. that I tend to focus on that area. But really, there are so many people sure. that are really trying to improve so many different aspects of lives. Um, but th- there's really... I mean, probably a hundred thousand neuroscientists doing work. Mm-hmm. Over a hundred thousand neuroscientists sure. around the world doing work to improve people's lives. So, mm-hmm. but there is a site that people can look at called okay. clinicaltrials.org. Okay. Clinical trials. Org. And if they ever want to see if they want to participate in a study that they may want to, um, you know, help out in, definitely take a look. Yeah. I've even, I've looked for it myself. My own study is registered. Every clinical trial has to get, in the United States has to get registered in this site it's a registry for every clinical trial in the united states wow. so whether it's cancer or parkinson's mm-hmm. alzheimer's or traumatic brain injury or acquired brain injury the and they're doing some kind of uh clinical trial it's going to be in this site i think there are many brain injury survivors out there who might raise their hand you know i'm I'm really curious when it comes to thing treatments and things out there, as long as it wouldn't, you know, kill me or, you know, <laughs> something like that. But um, I was telling my mom about Neuralink where they put a chip in your brain and maybe it could regain function. Obviously, it's going to be, I think, years before they're there. She's like, you would actually try that? I'm like, if it worked, I would, but... <laughs> so, yeah, the... The brain computer interface. Yeah, I, I have I haven't seen the research, but I've seen videos uh-huh. of it where actually they lay almost like a computer grid over top of the uh-huh. uh, scalp to pen it so that the so the way that uh, brain cells work is uh-huh. through electricity. Yeah, such microscopic electricity. And so the, this grid, like a computer grid, would just pick up on the electricity mm-hmm. and hopefully that would send signals to the, paral- uh, you know, the arm with the paralysis yeah. to cause a contraction of an arm. So mm-hmm. I've seen some basic models of that to occur. You know, and I think that that will be it's very rudimentary, yeah. but I think it's a way that people are going to um, help with the recovery, uh-huh. um, or not, not necessarily recovery, that's not what I meant, because people are using 
robotics now for rehabilitation, but mm -hmm. as a functional tool to help be functional is what I meant to say. Sure. What do you hope to see or what is your goal to see in the future when it comes to recovery for brain injuries? Like, you know, in a perfect world, what would you like to see? I could go first. Um, in a perfect world, I would like to see it be like Grey's Anatomy. Like you go in, you have this crazy wild surgery, you come out and it's like nothing happened. Because that's also what I thought was going to happen when mm -hmm. I went in, even though it was, again, overly explained to me the um, different scenarios that yeah. I would meet up to. Uh, but I, it was my first time in the hospital, so what did I know? So when I woke yeah. up, I was very confused why it was not like Grey's Anatomy and why it <laughs> took so long to recover. Yeah. You know... For me, uh, you know, bouncing off of that idea is that that there's more research that which requires funding to improve one our knowledge of brain to of brain functions to improve brain function. But once we and to have the clinical trials to prove what does and doesn't work but then also let's take it one step further and apply through evidence-based practice through rehabilitation specialists mm -hmm. because exactly what Alyssa's saying even if there is some kind of impairment you need to have specialists with knowledge mm -hmm. of the best practice to improve those functions and we need even more knowledge to get to that point point. Mm -hmm. and I I'm a neuropsychologist but I'm in a department of occupational therapy mm -hmm. and we need so many scientists in the occupational therapy field mm -hmm. that to show the evidence of research for occupational therapists in rehabilitation. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I've heard many times that there's a shortage of specialists and doctors out there. Um, the My neuropsychologist told me the same exact thing. And uh, I think, you know, we just need to gain all our resources if we really want to make advancements and things like that. And I'll get on my soapbox also <laughs> just a little bit, but and it really starts with showing that the ev that there's evidence to improve people's lives. So we yeah. need that research, but also insurance companies will start to reimburse once we have the evidence uh -huh. to show that th what the therapies that are provided can improve people's lives also. Certain amount of years after my brain injury, I wanted to get like a tune-up and go back and get some more physical therapy because, you know, I was feeling a little off and insurance wouldn't cover my physical therapy. And that, that was so frustrating, you know? I mean, and I even, about a year ago, I was maybe, 
I was, you know, having an acquired brain injury, I think, Alyssa, you could probably attest to this. You know, you feel one little weird feeling in your head or in your your affected side, and you're like, oh, my God, it's happening again. And it, it was around a certain time, it was kind of ramping up a little bit. So I was like, you know, I'd really like to go get an MRI or a CAT scan or something. And my insurance, they wouldn't cover the MRI. And I was like... Are you kidding me? Like, even for the mental health aspect of it, like, I feel like you, you know, you should, you know, but whatever. It's crazy. Yeah. Do you ever, do you ever feel like you're having, you could have another brain injury, Alyssa? Like, when you have a weird feeling in your side or something? No, no. Uh, fortunately, I, I haven't experienced that. Um, yeah. I did, I would say, Prior to having the surgery, I would, like, always think, like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get Bell's palsy or I'm going to have a facial paralysis again um, or brain bleed again. And um, that was kind of, like, I guess going back to the anxiety of it, just, like, reliving it. But um, after my brain surgery, no, I was very fortunate that I was one and done, as I like to say, knock on wood. Um, And there is a very, very tiny piece of um, cavernoma of the blood vessels still deep in my brainstem. Um, the first seven years I got uh, MRIs, and after that it was yearly, and then we finally were able to stop that because there was luckily no changes. So um, I'm hoping that that is the course for the rest of my life, but, uh, you know. It's definitely something that's in the back of your head, but you just, you can't live your life thinking about it constantly. No, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So, um, you know, we're kind of touching an hour here. Is there anything else you guys want to mention or talk about or discuss? Um, I would just like to thank you so much for having us on to talk about everything from the survey to what the future may hold for different um, brain and brainstem conditions. Mm -hmm. And if if anyone has any questions on the survey, uh, I don't know, trend you the links. I know that you have them. But if anyone has any questions, Mm -hmm. you can reach out to either of us um, and find us on Instagram under Braveness Project. Mm -hmm. And we're happy to reach out and help you where, where we can. No, I'll put a link in. The... I would just like. No, I just want to thank you also for taking the time to uh, have us on show as well, sure. and um, making us feel so comfortable and giving us time to talk about our project, our combined project, but also, you know, about my own other research projects yeah. and how I'm also, you know, how we're trying to improve people's lives. Um, uh-huh. It's a continual project. It's a, it's a life, lifetime goal. What you gonna do about it? Nothing. I what you gonna do about it? Nothing. The bleeding brain. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. Nobody!